0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Uh, so I remind you, if you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read at Ayers, L.A. are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No sorry, We got uh, some obituaries to bring to you here. So let's start off with this one. From the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday August 13, 2023 Donald Gold September 9, 1932 to February 13, 2023 Author Unknown long Directors Guild of America field representative Donald Gold has died after a brief illness. He was 90 years old. A native of San Francisco, Donald grew up in the Mission District where his parents Anna and Morris owned a grocery store and later dons donuts on Castro Street where he helped out by minding the till and generously sampling the product. He graduated from Lowell in 1950. 1950. His journey uh, there required that he take three buses to reach the campus. Donald played left guard on the football team and funny man in the classroom, revealing early on his joyful spirit, uh, great curiosity, interest in others, and a unique ability to communicate with persons of all backgrounds. Donald enrolled at San Francisco State University, where he graduated with a B.A. in Broadcasting. He also did graduate studies in Criminology and Psychology at San Francisco State and UC Berkeley. Donald's interest in the entertainment field landed him his first television job in San Francisco at KOVR in 1955 as stage manager. His television career as stage manager, producer, and director continued at KPIX, KRON, and KGO, including the Tennessee Ernie Ford, uh, Russ Coughlin, and Joe Dolan shows. For a brief time in the mid 70s, Donald was a radio talk show host on KG, KGO. From 1971 to 76, he was a San Francisco juvenile probation officer. His career took a major turn in 1976 when he accepted positions in Los Angeles as stage manager and associate director for a multitude of TV variety shows and sitcoms, including the Grammy Awards, Happy Birthday Las Vegas, and the Jerry Lewis Labor Day Telethon, eventually leading to his hiring in 1979 as field representative for the Directors Guild of America, a position he held and loved for 30 years. Donald served as a revered mentor to members, staff, and studio personnel, ensuring that creative rights and working conditions of the DGA members were respected. He participated in every DGA contract negotiation between 1981 and 2010, including a five-minute strike in 1987. A resident of Studio City, California for 47 years, Donald's heart was in San Francisco and stayed true to his Giants, 49ers, and Warriors. He was an inveterate film lover, well read, and witty. His warm, happy, welcoming demeanor endeared him to friends and strangers through his life. Donald was predeceased by his brother Frank. He is survived by three daughters from an earlier mar- marriage Lisa Gold, Allison Steve Krause, Susan Mark Kovinsky, and grandchildren Ben, Rachel, Lily, and Jake. He shared the last 52 years of his life in a loving marriage with Susan Weber Gold. That was Donald Go, September 9, 1932 to February, 20, February 3, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, August 13, 2023. Alright, here's another one, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, also Sunday, August 13, 2023, Aaron Merle Epstein, August 18, 1932, March 14, 2023, author unknown, uh, Aaron Merle Andy Epstein, a proud and active 55-year resident of Valley Village, passed away on March 14, 2023 after a long illness. Andy was born on August 18, 1930 to Louis and Anne Goldman Epstein. His father was a European Jewish immigrant who arrived in America with his entire family in the Great Wave at the beginning of the 20th century. A native Angelino, Andy was raised in Hollywood and practically grew up on Hollywood Boulevard, where his father had opened the Pickwick Bookshop. After studying at UCLA and the University of Washington, Andy settled back in Los Angeles. He worked briefly for Sears Roebuck before heeding the call of the family business and and becoming a bookseller alongside his father. By the mid-1960s, he led the expansion of the business from a Hollywood landmark into a regional powerhouse chain. Andy's closest friends in the world were Sigma Alpha Mu brothers from UCLA and UW. He and Anne, whom he married in 1967, relished traveling near and far for decades for birthdays, weddings, and all varieties of milestone events. After Pickwick was merged with the B. Dalton bookstores in the late 1960s, Andy sought to make his own mark in the world, founding with his brother Eugene Artisan's Patio, a unique courtyard of shops on a Hollywood Boulevard that, for five decades, he managed right up until his death. Always curious, Andy was also a pioneer and pillar of the computer industry in Southern California. Founding Patio Computer Sales Company in 1977, he specialized in good service and wholesale prices to all to, to the burgeoning hobbyist computer culture at the time. He also served as president of the Valley Computer Club. And he was a lifelong champion of social justice and community causes, passionately dedicating his energies to agitate in favor of civil rights against sweatshop labor and for the property rights of small business owners. Never one to shy away from the good fight, Andy fought City Hall on several occasions, preserving Hollywood landmarks, fighting eminent domain, and even becoming a hero for public open meetings after a victory in a case he took all the way to the California Supreme Court. Undeniably, his most spectacular achievement came late in life when at age 90 and fed up with the absence of decent internet service in his neighborhood despite misleading advertising, he took out an ad in the Wall Street Journal complaining directly to AT&T's CEO. The ad spread virally with his worldwide news coverage, even uh, receiving mention on the Stephen Colbert show. While his protest may have been unconventional, it was a resounding success, resulting in a personal phone call from at and t CEO and Fiber Optic Service was extended to the neighborhood within days. He loved Hollywood and film history, dark chocolate, bagpipes, and all things Scottish and Irish. His famous 4th of July barbecue spanning the decades from the mid-50s to the late 70s and always featured his beloved homemade coffee ice cream. He is survived by his wife, Anne Rosenwald Epstein, his children, Jennifer and Adam, Kate, his brother, Eugene, his sister-in-law, Carol, brothers-in-law, Peter Rosenwald, and Sia Madrone, and a myriad of cousins. May his memory be a blessing to all who are fortunate to know him. A memorial gathering is planned for August 18, 2023. Make donations to CREA Center for Reflection, Education, and Action Incorporated. PO Box 2507, Hartford, Connecticut, 06146-2507. EIN uh, number 06 451900 or BetZ. W.betzed.org. There was Aaron Merle Epstein, August 18, 1930 to March 14, 2023. Author unknown. From the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, August 13, 2023. And we have this final one here. From the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, August 19, 2023. Donna Gold, September 12, 1931 to August 19, 2022. It's been one year since Donna Gold, 90, passed away peacefully on August 19, 2022 in Sherman Oaks, California. Beloved wife, mother, grandmother, sister, aunt, she was born on September 12, 1931, in Cleveland, Ohio. She was the daughter of the late Arthur Gressel and Catherine K. Glazer, and the first and only girl to be born to the Glazer side of the family that ultimately produced 11 boys. Predeceased by her older brother, Alan Gressel, and husband, Lee B. Gold, M.D., she leaves behind her three sons, John, Richard, and Brian, four grandchildren. Andrew, Allie, Sarah, and Jason, her younger brother Joel Gressel, his wife Eleanor Corey, and the families of their two daughters, Catherine and Tamar, as well as the families of nephew David Gressel and of niece Deborah Gressel, with her husband Harold Madorski. Anyone who knew Donna knew of her love for art, the arts, and specifically music. She was a child prodigy of classical concert piano and also had the gift of perfect pitch. Donna attended Shaker Heights High School and, as a senior, played a Mozart piano concerto movement with the orchestra before attending the Juilliard School of Music, where she double majored in piano and bassoon. Her favorite composer was Beethoven, with Brahms running a close second, and later on in she would listen and watch symphony orchestra concerts for hours on end. She married Lee B. Gold on September 7, 1952 in Cleveland, Ohio and began looking for places Lee could finish his medical residency program and settled in Los Angeles where they would start their family in 1954. Don and Lee traveled extensively and began collecting tribal and indigenous art from all over the world, from the American Southwest to the Pacific Northwest to Papua, New Guinea, Indonesia, the Pacific Rim, Africa, and other places. This led to an import-export business, which expanded quite rapidly. Donna took on all the responsibilities of the business She le- uh, like she took on any project, head first into the deep end, and wow, was it successful. In addition to raising a family, traveling, running a business seriously, supporting the theater arts and all forms of art and entertainment, Donna made the time to always know current events, and always taught her family social justice and ways to improve our planet. When not listening to her music, she was known to have CNN or NPR on and was ready to discuss any issue at any time. She had a keen eye for fashion and the latest trends and was also tenderly known as the gadget queen who had to have the latest appliance or item for her kitchen or home. She was one of the first to have an iPhone and mastered it right away. Donna always persevered and moved forward through life with the most optimistic view. Donna would always tell you the truth even if it wasn't what you wanted to hear. She was kind, gentle, truthful, and empathetic, generous, and curious, and quick to laugh, and everyone who met her felt her positivity and love. Her legacy would live on in the hearts and minds of everyone she interacted with as well as those she reached but never personally met. May her memory be a blessing to us all. That was Donna Gold, September 12, 1931 to August 19, 2022. Author Unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, August 19, 2023. Okay, now let's uh, go to this one from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, August 16, 2023. Yaroslavsky shifts gears on creating no camping areas. Councilmember in February said she wanted more data first. What Changed? By David Zanazar. Six months ago, Los Angeles City Councilmember Katie Yaroslavsky took a firm stand on the city's law regulating homeless encampments, saying she would not support the creation of any new no-camping zones until she had received a written report analyzing the law's effectiveness. Yaroslavsky made that announcement in February, as she and three of her colleagues voted to oppose the creation of no camping zones in Westchester, Venice, North Hollywood, and other locations, she cast more no votes over the following months, opposing anti-camping zones in Woodland Hills, Granada Hills, and Northridge. Now, Yaroslavsky is taking a somewhat different approach, promising residents in her Westside district that she will create a new camping, a new no camping area at Pico Boulevard and Midvale Avenue, where she is planning to convert a city parking lot into a 30-bed interim homeless housing facility. In a recent Zoom meeting with her constituents, she said LAPD officers would be available if necessary to enforce the planning no camping rules around that location once the housing is up and running. The last thing we want is for it to be a draw for encampments, she said. That's unacceptable and won't happen. So what happened between February and now? For one thing, Yaroslavsky has grown increasingly frustrated with by the lack of interim homeless housing beds in her district, which she needs for her effort to clear, to clear sidewalk encampments and move people indoors. For another, her plan for interim housing has drawn critics who have questioned whether the new interim housing facility on Pico Boulevard will become a public safety issue. Yaroslavsky promised to create a new no-camping zone, frequently referred to as a 41.18 zone, after the section of the Los Angeles Municipal Code that spells out where homeless encampments can be prohibited, even though the report she requested on the ordinance is not finished. That stance has put her in an odd position. Repeatedly saying no to residents who asked for no encampment zones in other council districts, while saying yes to those who support them in her own. Asked about those differences, different stances, Yaslavsky pointed out that each time she voted against a 41.18 zone, her colleagues on the council outvoted her, approving the locations anyway. She said she hasn't uh, wavered from her uh, view that the creation of any new anti- anti-camping zone must be accompanied by credible office of housing to homeless residents in the area and that documentation must be submitted upfront to show that work is being done. At the same time Yaroslavsky said she is trying not to take a rigid approach to the law and she said that as a relatively new member of the council she is still learning. I think it's okay to have your position on things evolve with new uh, information or reality, said Yaroslavsky, who took office in December. You learn. So for now, that's kind of how I'm thinking about 41.18 enforcement. The debate around 41.18 has raged for more than two years. Supporters call it a necessary tool for addressing encampments, allowing council members to create a 500-foot buffer around parks, freeway overpasses, and other sensitive locations. The law also prohibits encampments from coming too close to doorways, driveways, and fire hydrants, or occupying so much sidewalk that a wheelchair user cannot get past. Opponents of 41.18, such as city controller Kenneth Mejia, have argued that the law criminalizes homelessness, creating fresh trauma for those who live on the streets. Other critics have said that the issuance of citations already for under 41.18 places a financial burden on the city's neediest. Josiatski has been part of a five-member bloc that uh, that routinely voted against the new 41.18 locations. Those council members cast those votes at times when residents from other council districts showed up showed up to request new zones. In February, a clutch of San Fernando Valley residents showed up at City Hall to ask for a new 41.18 zones in or near North Hollywood. Eleanor Eleanor Wallman, a resident of West Toluca Lake, told the council during that meeting that she regularly had to walk in traffic lanes of busy boulevards to get around encampments and had stopped walking on certain streets altogether. I used to walk to Tohunga Village along Moore Park and Riverside Drive. I used to walk to North Hollywood Park along Tohunga Avenue. This situation is not freedom, it's not humane, it is not safe, and it is not healthy, she told the council. The new council approved the new 41.18 zones with Yaroslavsky and council members Marquise Harris-Dawson, Nithia Raman, and Hugo Soto-Martinez voting no. On Friday, Wallen said 41.18 did provide relief in the designated no-encampment areas, primarily at busy freeway overpasses. But, she added, some homeless residents in her neighborhood have been living just outside the 500-foot zones occupying different stretches of sidewalk. That assessment could provide ballast for Yaroslavsky, who has repeatedly argued that 41.18 zones push unhoused residents from one block to the next unless there are credible offers to housing of housing. Which begs a question, will Yaroslavsky make sure that homeless Angelinos who set up tents outside the new interim housing project on Pico Boulevard receive offers of housing once enforcement of the new no-camping uh, no zone begins, even if the facility is full to capacity? Leo Daub, Yaroslavsky's spokesperson, said the council office will attempt to connect those new arrivals with housing and services. However, if housing is not available at that moment, those unhoused people will still have to move, he said. Daub said he expects the upcoming analysis of forty-one point one eighteen to come, uh, come out well before Jaroslavsky's proposal for a new no-encampment zone reaches the council. As the debate over the Pico Boulevard project intensifies, Yaroslavsky said she hasn't decided whether her new no camping zone will cover a 500-foot radius around the site or a 1,000. She also said she remains concerned that new 41.18 zones are sometimes created for whoever screams the loudest and is the best organized. At a time when LAPD resources are stretched thin, I don't think that's the best way for the city to be regulating public space, she said. That was Yaroslavsky's Shifts Gears on Creating No-Camping Areas by David Zonizer from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, August 16, 2023. This article was originally published in LA on the record The Times local government and po- uh, politics newsletter. Subscribe at latimes.com/newsletters. Okay, moving on. here's this one from the calendar from, from the Los Angeles Times Friday August 18 2023 how Schiff celebrated Trump's fourth indictment. Being ex-president's foe, AIDS Congressman said it bid, but that carries some risk too by Benjamin Oreskes. Riverside County Democratic Party Chair Joy Silver worked the crowd with the, gu- with the guile of a Vegas nightclub opening act stalling until Representative Adam B. Schiff arrived. A room of about 150 or so eager liberals had turned out to see the Senate candidate and arch enemy of former President Trump. Instead, they were hearing Silver butter up every Democratic club in the county. It wasn't that the Burbank representative was stuck in traffic or hobnobbing with VIPs Tuesday evening. He's out in the parking lot doing CNN. Silver told the crowd, "If you get CNN on your phone, he's on the air right now. He'll walk right in, so we just got to wait a few more minutes." The network had sent a satellite van, which he popped into for several for seven minutes to join anchor Caitlin Collins as she updated the nation about Trump's fourth indictment which pertains to his alleged efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. Since Trump entered the White House in 2017, Schiff has been one of his top antagonists. That stature elevated Schiff's 2021 book Midnight in Washington: How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could to the bestsellers list. As a top Senate can- uh, candidate, as a top candidate for Senate, Schiff y- is using that ubiquitous Uh, Ubiquity to fuel his campaign uh, at a strategy to be everywhere all the time, doing local and national media along with campaign events big and small, hence the waiting satellite van in Riverside. I felt ever since I got to Congress that if my constituents don't know what I'm doing, it's not on them, it's on me, Schiff said. With respect to some of the national challenges, like the challenge to our democracy, there's so many people out there putting out bad information. I think it's very important to be a great explainer and put in context what's happening in the country. It's not as if Schiff's top Democratic rivals in the race to replace retiring Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, are Trump lackeys. Both Representatives Barbara Lee, Democrat of Oakland, and Representatives Katie Porter, Democrat of Irvine, have found prominent ways to stand up to Trump. Lee is uh, is lead plaintiff in a lawsuit against Trump over his role in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. And throughout Trump's tenure, Porter used her whiteboard and tough questioning style to expose what she saw as flaws in his administration's policies. But when Trump's legal troubles are in, are in the news, it's Schiff, whom cable networks invite on the shows. The repeated exposure, with Trump's cases unfolding in multiple legal jurisdictions over the coming months, could give Schiff an advantage and West begun as a tight race by putting him in the living rooms of millions of California voters at no expense to his campaign. Since mid-July, he's been on either MSNBC or CNN at least 11 times far more than his competitors. Political consultants unaffiliated with this campaign say Schiff has used the prominence gained from his role as an impeachment multiple inquiries into Trump's relationship to Russia and the House Select Committee inquiry into the January 6th Capitol attack to great effect. During the first Trump impeachment proceeding, Schiff was one of several representatives to make the case for that the president should be removed from office. Similarly, he was the ranking member and later the chair of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and later led one of the January 6th committee's public hearings, which included an inquiry into what occurred in Georgia. The message he's preached at these congressional hearings targeting Trump's alleged misdeeds the need to protect American democracy has become a pivotal issue to California voters. A May poll from the Times and UC Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies found that after the economy, 23%, threats to democracy, 19%, ranked as the most important issue likely voters in California were assessing when deciding whom to support for Senate. It's the gold standard of Democratic worthiness to take on Donald Trump in a battle and fight the enemy for good reasons, said strategist Doug Herman, who most recently served as Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass's election advisor. It's really a solid credential out in the greater political world, but it's an even more powerful credential in a crowded Democratic primary. That same Berkeley poll revealed a tight race for Senate. GOP businessman Eric Early led with 18% of the state's likely voters, nearly all, nearly all Republicans. Porter is close behind with 17%, Following followed by Schiff with 14%. But among people who rated threats to democracy as the most important issue, Schiff led the field 29%, and Porter came in second with 25%. David Axelrod, an advisor to former President Obama, referenced Schiff's speech at the end of the first impeachment trial as one of the great pieces of oratory, one that will be remembered as prophetic because the congressman said, what are the odds, if left in office, that Trump will continue to try to cheat? I will tell you, 100%. Axelrod noted that Schiff's recent censor by House Republicans proved to be a boon for his fundraising, helping him rake in roughly double the combined total raised by Lee and Porter. Axelrod isn't working for Schiff but was previously partners in a campaign consulting firm with Larry Rizzolano, who was now advising the congressman. Herman has also previously worked with Grizzolano on races, including the uh, Bass campaign. Atzerodt and others and others cautioned, however, that Schiff has to had to go beyond just being a check on Trump, and be careful not to become a single-issue candidate. As potent a foil as Trump remains, voters will want to hear Schiff speak of, uh, to their concerns about the economy, immigration, and the environment. Being the number one congressional foil of Trump among Democrats, that's a badge of honor, Axelrod said. There's no doubt that has a tremendous upside. But if you're only the guy who's seen on MSNBC or CNN talking about Donald Trump, there's a danger to that as well. That's why you see him out there doing all these other things. Just to remind people, hey, I paint on a broad palette here and I'm working on stuff that is really important to you. Since the House recess last month, Schiff has been crisscrossing the state, trying to do just that. After spending Monday at the U.S.-Mexico border in San Diego, Schiff began Tuesday in Calexico with his wife Eve talking with local advocates about affordable housing and wealth inequalities. In an interview, he recalled meeting a U.S. citizen living in Mexico who woke every day at 1 a.m. and crossed the border most days to work in the fields and make enough to care for his family. He also talked about a recent trip to the Central Valley, where he had met Madeira residents concerned about the local hospital closing and a lack of clean drinking water. When Sheffield arrived in Riverside later that day in triple-digit heat, he toured several dozen towns where dozens of warehouses have sprouted sprouted up to help feed the nation's insatiable demand for e-commerce. The fumes from idling big rigs sicken residents, they told him. The envir- then-environmental activists showed him the Stringfella acid pit toxic waste site. You see people struggling to find decent-paying jobs. You've got all these warehouses moving and affecting, affecting the quality of life and the quality of their health, he said. They're not producing long-term good jobs for people. They're producing transient jobs and a lot of illnesses. According to Schiff, a former federal prosecutor who served in the state Senate before winning his congressional seat in 2000, there's a direct connection between the economic situation in this country and the conditions that made it ripe for Trump to return to power. Though it's gotten less attention, Schiff has long advocated to bring more resources to his district to address issues such as homelessness. I've talked to President Biden about it, and he very much feels exactly the same way that his economic agenda is part of the democracy agenda, Schiff said. His speech before the Riverside County Democrats was no different. An attempt to braid these themes into something compelling for voters who've spent the last several years offended by Trump. But unlike most Senate race stump speeches, this one included an extended analysis of the Fulton County indictment in Georgia. He explained he was proud that his work on the January 6th committee had laid the groundwork for Trump's indictment, but also mentioned his recent travels across the state and the economic unfairness he observed everywhere. After the ship wrapped up, Diana Rodriguez, 68, and her daughter Kim Be- Belangueri stood eagerly awaiting a photo of the candidate. Rodriguez said she had voted Republican until Trump's ascendance when she changed her party's registration. Both followed the news obsessively, tracking every imagination in the former president's legal drama. Nothing could be worse than his possible return to the White House, they said. There's no democracy, the economy doesn't even matter, Rodriguez said. We need people like Schiff protecting it. That was how Schiff celebrated Trump's fourth indictment by Benjamin Oreskes from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, August 18, 2023. All right, so now we're going to turn to a short article from um, the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, August 13, 2023. As most of you know, this year is celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip-hop music, and one of our brothers made the cut. So this is from, like I said, the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Sunday, August 13, 2023. In 2009, Drake and the Rise of Sad Boy rap. Author Unknown. Hip-hop has always included some introspection and sensitivity alongside the genre's traditional masculine bravado. But 2009 was a high-water mark with a moody, melodic strain of sad boy rap. That year, the crown prince of softies, Drake, scored his first top ten single with Best I Ever Had. The love-struck song showed his way around a gently, gently crooned hook that would become DeRigoir in hip-hop for a generation to come. Also that year, Kid Cutie dropped his era-defining LP Man on the Moon The End of Day. Executive produced by Kanye West fresh off his own self-lacerating 808s and the Heartbreak. The album blended psychedelic vibes, indie rock melodies, and a vocal delivery somewhere between rapping, stoned singing, and voice-over narration. That was Drake and the Rise of Sad Boy Pop. Author unknown. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, August 13, 2023. Okay, now here is something from Uprocks.com. And this is called, A supporter of Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes stepped into the ring with a Jewish UFC fighter and got the shit kicked out of him. By Judge Kirp, senior editor... uh, for a senior pop culture editor for August 18, 2023. A neo-Nazi defender fucked around and found out by getting up. Natan Levy, a UFC fighter from Israel, as his Twitter bio reads, posted a video this week recapping a fight between him and a far-right Twitter troll. The beat started earlier this month when Levy tweeted that white nationalist Nick Fuentes was built like a chopstick. One of Fuentes' followers, some schmuck named Ben, quote tweeted back at Levy, I'll drive to Vegas any day of the week to spar, on you, spar you on behalf of Nicholas J. Fuentes and America First. With no formal MMA training, should it be easy, right? Challenge accepted. Just day two days later, Ben arrived at the Extreme Couture Gym in Las Vegas and signed waivers to make it official. I saw one on his post uh, come across Twitter, Ben said in the video. It was critical of somebody who associates himself with America First and the political values that I value. As a defender of that and a former martial arts experienced trained person myself, I thought it'd be fun to come spar. Less fun getting his ass whooped by Levy. Why were you talking shit about Jews on Twitter? Why were you defending Nicholas Quintus? Levy asked Ben before the fight, he replied. I think because of what he says is right. You can layer that behind a mask, Levy interrupted. He denies the Holocaust. Ben believes Fuentes is more of a revisionist, whatever that means. Before they stepped into the ring, Ben was feeling cocky. He boasted that he's practiced a mix of karate and taekwondo for eight years. And although he's never done a five-minute round before, I play UFC 4 a lot. Levy promised to not hurt him too bad. But a lesson needs to be taught here about trolling. Let's see how it went. You can watch the full video above. And that, unfortunately, is the is the extent of that article. That was a supporter of Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes stepped into the ring with a Jewish UFC fighter and got the shit kicked out of him. By Josh Kirp, Senior Pop Culture Editor for Uprocks.com, August 18, 2023. Okay, now we're going to go to some articles from a publication called J. Living Celebrations Issue 2023. And uh, we start off with the Michigan section, and this is on ice cream. A series of little articles here, starting first with Baskin Robbins. In 1945, Irv Robbins used a portion of his bar mitzvah money to open the Snowbird Ice Cream Parlor in Glendale. Meanwhile, Bert Baskin owned a men's store in Chicago and had married Irv's sister a few years earlier. After serving in the Navy, Bert decided to settle, settle his family in California. Irv encouraged his brother-in-law to make the switch from selling suits and ties to scooping ice cream. Taking this advice to heart, Bert opened Burton's Ice Cream in Pasadena. In 1948, the two entrepreneurs decided to combine their shops, and during this collaboration, they came up with their 31st flavor, Chocolate Mint. This marked the beginning of what we now know and love as Baskin-Robbins. As Baskin-Robbins. This is haagen in Brooklyn. Reuben Matos, a Polish Jew, laid the foundation for haagen as an ice cream legacy that has delighted taste buds worldwide. At the age of 10, Ruben immigrated to America and soon found himself working diligently at his uncle's Italian lemon ice business in the bustling streets of Brooklyn. In 1936, he tied the knot with his childhood sweetheart, Rose, and the two embarked on a shared mission to create the ultimate ice cream recipe. When they were ready, Ruben knew the name was critical. In honor of the Danish who smuggled Jews out of danger during the war, Ruben created the name haagen While the name is Nordic-sounding, it does not have meaning, and Ruben added an, an umlaut which is not a part of the Danish alphabet. That's haagen in Brooklyn. This is Ben & Jerry's Bagels? What could have been? Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield embarked on their entrepreneurial journey without a clear vision of the future business. When they stumbled upon a steep machinery cost of making bagels, fate intervened, leading them to discover the world of ice cream. They enrolled in a course at Penn State to learn the art of ice cream making. In 1978, they took a leap of faith and opened their first store, offering ice cream and crepes soups, and various other foods. Just one year later, they made the decision to drop the food sales altogether and focus solely on what truly captivated the patrons, their extraordinary ice cream creations. That was Ben & Jerry's Bagels. This is the Challenges of Kosher Ice Cream. One might assume that ice cream, with its basic ingredients of cream, sugar, and flavorings, wouldn't raise kosher concerns. However, as stated by the Orthodox Union, contemporary ice cream is one of the most challenging dairy products out there. The challenges arise due to various factors in the modern ice cream production process. These factors include the use of sweet cream versus whey cream and the incorporation of dry milk sweeteners, emulsifiers, and stabilizers, which make every step and ingredient in the ice cream-making process a kosher-sensitive moment. To ensure that the final product meets the strict kosher standards, ice cream manufacturers must carefully assess each each ingredient's source and and the production processes involved. This meticulous attention to detail is necessary to earn kosher certification from organizations like the Orthodox Union. That was The Challenges of Kosher Ice Cream. And this last one is called Manischewitz Has a Sense of Humor. When you hear the name Manischewitz, it's like a gateway to a world of classic Jewish foods, wine, matzah, and the unmistakable gefelte fish in a jar. With the lines like ice cream with a lick of chutzpah and reliving the borscht belt summer, they proudly presented their unique creations. Black and white cookie, matzah ball, and yes, even Gefeltafish. fish. The reaction was swift and mixed, with many expressing their opinions, especially about the Gefeltafish fish ice cream. It's safe to say that Manischewitz's move was a marketing success, stirring up curiosity and conversation among their fans and critics alike. That was Manischewitz has a sense of humor, and those are from the Mishikos section, and the subject was ice cream. Now, this is something from the NOSH section. This is called Duff Goldman, Meaningful Cakes for Beautiful Celebrations by Deborah Eckerling. Cakes signify special occasions. Whether it's a wedding, a bened mitzvah, or something else, you want to have a cake that you and your guests love. The secret to a great cake? Keep it simple, make it good, make it beautiful, says Duff Goldman, chef, New York Times bestselling author, artist, Artist and entrepreneur, Duff is the owner of the successful bakery Charm City Cakes and founder of Duff's Cake Mix. His cakes are available nationwide on Gold Valley. Although we live in a DIY world, where you are planning a se- uh, when you are planning a celebration, especially a wedding, Duff says it's best to let someone else bake your cake. You have just you have you just have too many other things to do, he says. Wedding cakes are very labor-intensive. They take a lot of time and mental space. Take taste, Duff believes, is the most important aspect of any cake. No matter how beautiful it is, they're going to serve it, Duff says. When they serve it and all your guests eat it, if, that, if this cake is garbage, that's what they're going to remember. He adds, it's not more expensive to make a cake delicious, and it's not more difficult to make a cake delicious. So you might as well get a delicious cake. Duff suggests keeping your flavors simple. The way your cake appeals to everybody, you can have a chocolate cake, red velvet, lemon poppy, whatever you want. For instance, if you order a lemon poppy cake from Duff, you get white buttercream and lemon curd on the side. And don't get too creative. If you order a lemon poppy cake with a blackberry filling and cinnamon frosting, you don't even know what you're eating at that point, Duff says. Simplicity doesn't just apply to taste. The decoration should be beautiful, classy, and look good in photographs. Don't try to tell your life story with your wedding cake, Duff says. I think that's a mistake a lot of people make. If your cake needs a legend for everybody looking at it to be able to figure out what it is, then it's too complicated. For example, if the happy couple is into death metal, they could get a black cake with chrome on it. But don't put a ticket stub from every metal concert you've ever been to on it. Nobody's going to take the time to read all those ticket stubs, he says, and you waste a lot of money paying me to make all those ticket stubs. Well, there are a lot of things that are possible with cake, dove can make them move, shoot lasers, etc. If you try to say too much with a cake, if you try to tell your life story, things get lost in translation. People want to make the cake look like a giant mountain, for instance. They'll say, we'll have this winding path through the mountain, and this is where the paths will come together. Before that, I had an orange cat named Whiskers, and he had this 1986 Toyota Camry with a dent in the hood. When you try to tell this story with all these little things, it ends up looking like a diorama, and Duff believes it's never as effective as people want. The cake on the inside is still good, but you've got to cut through all that, he says. If his 1986 Toyota Camry with a dent in it is that uh, that important, we'll just make a big version of that. People see it. They remember it. They know exactly what it is. Take one of two uh, two things and make them big. You could do your 86 Camry with whiskers sitting on top of it or like sticking his head out of the sunroof or something, says Duff, was make cakes in the shape of vehicles, planes, boats and fish. We do a lot more traditional tiered cakes than we do 86 Toyota Camrys with a dent he adds. Some people want a nine-tier white beautiful wedding cake with flowers on it. Some people want a Sasquatch. It's just who you are and what you and what do you remember you what do you want to remember in 20 years when you're when you're looking at pictures. Duff and his team have made cakes in the shape of the wall. He's made a matzo ball soup cake. They do torahs too. With uh, with bar, mit- bar and bat mitzvahs, a, uh, a lot of pe- a lot a lot of times people will get a photograph of the torah that's at their synagogue. He adds. Sometimes we'll do the ark too. With bar and bat mitzvahs, people are getting more personal too. If she rides horses, maybe we'll do a horse. He says. If he plays ice hockey, we'll do skates. It's not just torah uh, sheet cakes anymore. One thing Duff has noticed recently is kids putting the charitable component of their bar bat mitzvah into their cake. They tie the cake into whatever it is they're doing, be it Habitat for Humanity or No Kid Hungry or Make-A-Wish or whatever it is, he says. The cake is such a focal point that it's a chance for them to hit home with their fundraising. He adds, the fact that there's more and more tzedakah components of bar bat mitzvahs gives me hope for the future. While Duff recommends people find a cake baker for any celebration, if you plan to bake your own B'nai Mitzvah cake, he says the first thing is to find a cake that you like. If it's a box cake mix, use it. It's delicious, he says. If you want to make it from scratch, do that. Again, it's really personal preference. If you're going to do it yourself, I would say make it an event. Maybe invite four or five of your friends over, and you can all decorate your Barba Mitzvah cake together. You get to when you when you go to a cake baker, Dove says it's important to come with ideas. Come with pictures that you've found online or sketches or just a general direction of where to go, he says. They don't know you, who you are, and what you're into. You need to tell them. Give them an idea of what you want your cake to look like, he suggests. As opposed to saying, My name is Rebecca, I really like horses, and Hamilton, go. Then it's like what are we doing here? Do you want Lin Manuel Miranda riding a horse? It doesn't need to be fully realized, but a, but a starting point. Just having a general direction that you know you want to go in will save everybody time. Duff says, ultimately, you you'll get a cake that you want as opposed to somebody else's for, uh, vision. Duff Goldman is a chef, New York Times bestselling author, artist, artist, and entrepreneur. His most recent cookbook, Super Good uh, Cookies for Kids, was released in 2022 and Super Good Baking for Kids in 2020. Duff is the owner of the successful bakery, Chime City Cakes, and founder of Duff's Cake Mix. His cakes are now available nationwide on Goldbelly. Question. What is your favorite cake to eat? Answer. I like yellow box cake mix with canned chocolate frosting. It's good stuff. It just makes me feel like I'm in second grade. Question. What's your favorite cake to make? Answer. I make a really nice clementine cake and it's made with almond flour and fresh clementines. It's my wife's favorite cake that I make. I love making it because she just devours it and it stays fresh for like two weeks. It's such a good cake. Question. When you're eating cake at home, do you decorate it? Answer. My daughter's first birthday cake was a chocolate cake. I iced it with chocolate frosting and then with white chocolate, I drew. Totoro from Hayao Miyazaki movie My Neighbor Totoro, because she loves Totoro. Question: So the box cake that you love to eat is that something that you actually make? Answer: No. Question: But if you go over some, to some go over to someone's house and there's a box cake uh, with ice cream, answer: I don't turn that down. Question: Who would serve you cake? Answer: Everybody. I love cake. Question. Your cakes are amazing, but do people ever say they look amazing to eat? Answer: No. We make sure they're good because they are beautiful, and we make sure they're worth cutting into. It's still a cake at the end of the day. No matter how much you spend on it, you uh, what you what you decorate it like, whatever special effects it has, anything, it's still a cake. And to sort of fulfill its function as a cake, you have to eat it. And that was Duff Goldman. Meaningful Cakes for Beautiful Celebrations, by Deborah Eckerling, from the Nosh section. And moving on to the Arts section, this is called Rite of Passage, From Novel to Film, You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah, gets another spin in the world, by Naomi Beverman. When the pitch came for from a book editor with Alloy Entertainment in 2003, author Amanda Stern was initially reluctant. I was on stage doing this event and she happened to be in the audience, Stern recalled during a telephone interview from her home in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, which she shares with her dog Buzzy. She came up to me afterward and said, You're really funny. Do you have any interest in writing for kids? We want to do a bat mitzvah book. Stern, who had grown up in a secular Jewish home in Manhattan, had never even had a bat mitzvah. Her first novel, The Long Haul, 2003, about a couple one an alcoholic, the other codependent in a doomed six-year relationship, had come out the same month to rave reviews. Uh, I, had mapped a, I had mapped out my career as a writer of serious adult literary fiction, so I was not interested, Stern recalled of her conversation with the editor. But the woman was persistent. She told me I could make up my own story, that I didn't have to use my actual name on the book cover, Stern said. So I said, let me work on a sample chapter, and I did, and it was really fun. It was such a good counterweight to the stuff I was writing for grown-ups, which was much darker and emotionally based. Two years later, the result was Stern's beloved, popular, and well-received young adult novel, You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah, popular little brown books for young readers publishing, $7.99, written under the pseudonym Fiona Rosenblum. The book was re released in paperback on July 25th in advance of a Netflix movie of the same name, inspired by the tome, to premiere on August 25th. The film stars and is produced by Adam Sandler, who appears alongside his real life wife, Jackie, and their two daughters, Sadie, 17, and Sunny, 14, who observed her own bat mitzvah with a star studded candy themed celebration last year. In the film, Sonny Sandler plays Stacey Friedman, a reformed Jewish 13-year-old who is cramming for her bat mitzvah while battling cliquey teenage politics and a best friend who has hooked up with the boy she likes. This perceived betrayal prompts Stacy to utter the words that will wreak havoc on her social life, You are so not invited to my bat mitzvah." During the Jay Living interview, Stern chose not to discuss the film in solidarity with screenwriters striking with the Writers Guild of America. She is not a member of the WGA. The re-release's cover, however, mentions that it has been adapted into a Netflix movie. In an interview via email, one of the producers of the movie, Alyssa Koplovitz Dutton, said that we had always talked about how great it would be to explore a film version of the book. The idea began taking shape when Netflix started making more movies for younger audiences. After that, it was a question of casting, and whether we realized that Sonny Sandler was turning 13, the stars aligned to begin putting the movie together. We love the celebration of Jewish culture and the specific milestone of bat mitzvah tradition set against the backdrop of a timeless coming-of-age friendship story. The movie is a celebration of Jewish culture and also extremely universal in its appeal with themes of friendship, romance, coming-of-age. Elisa Kopovitz-Dutton said that Stern was on board from the get-go. She added that a rabbi was on hand to help the actors and provide script guidance and make sure we got it right. Stern related to the best friend's breakup in the book, which also takes place in the film. At 13, she and her three closest gal pals got into a really big fight over a Jewish holiday, she recalled. She doesn't remember which one. But Stern and the other Jewish girl and their quartet were enraged that they had gone to school on the holiday while the non Jewish friends had ditched school and had taken a holiday that was not theirs. We just went wild with madness and have pitted us against each other. It ended up with my ended up with half my classes not speaking to me. For the book, I did take aspects of that feeling of being excluded, not chosen, invisible. But like a few months later, we all made up. <clears throat> when Stern's much younger sister became the only one in the family to have a bat mitzvah, the author, but then an adult, was a little bit jealous, she said. It's such a rite of passage, and I hadn't really had any rite of passage. During research for her novel, which included flying to Arizona to pursue her a friend's bat mitzvah preparation book and attending a handful of bar bat mitzvahs, Stern became aware that some 13-year-olds hadn't had so much a sense of the event's gravitas. It's really about the extravagance and the party, consumerism, and product, she said. That was a long time ago, but today's kids even make entrance videos and things like trailers for their barn bat mitzvahs. The fictional Stacy also starts out being more interested in the more superficial aspects of the event, in terms of the dress she’s going to wear, the party she’s going to have, and the boys she wants to kiss, Stern said. But over the course of the story, and spending time with, rab- uh, with a rabbi, she begins to identify with Judaism in a deeper way. During the interview, Stern, who described her as her age as Gen X, was open and approachable, hilarious and occasionally irreverent. In a photo, she appears wearing a stud in her nose and tousled shoulder-length hair. The conversation turned serious as she described growing up shuttling between her mother's bohemian home in Greenwich Village and her father's more upscale digs farther uptown. All the while, she suffered from an undiagnosed severe panic disorder, plus the resulting anxiety, agoraphobia, and depression, which she chronicles in her acclaimed 2018 memoir, Little Panic, dispatches from an anxious life. My entire childhood was painted over with a patina of terror, Stern recalled. Her angst arose from the acute separation anxiety she felt whenever she had to leave her mother. I was convinced that if I was separated from her that she would die, or if I wasn't watching she would disappear or forget she had kids or move to Europe and not send her forwarding address." Stern surmised that one reason for her anguish was that she had been born into a marriage that wasn't happy. When my parents split up when I was very young, something must have imprinted on me. Like someone can be there one day and then they're not. Paralyzed by her panic, Stern performed so poorly at school that she was deemed learning disabled and subjected to a battery of traumatic tests over nine years. She attempted to self-medicate with unhealthy relationships and, for a time, drugs such as cocaine. It wasn't until she was 25 and contemplating suicide while holed up in her apartment for three weeks that she finally visited the psychologist who diagnosed her panic disorder. I almost levitated with full a full-body relief, Stern recalled finally learning what had been causing her crippling symptoms. Taking antidepressants helped as was learning not to avoid her fears, but to go toward them and feel them. She noted that she was still alive, having already survived, but she thought she couldn't, and writing solidified her growing sense of stability and confidence. Stern is known for founding the legendary Happy Ending Music and Reading series, 2003-2018, to which required creative artists to <clears throat> take risks on stage. She also found a mental health newsletter, How to Live, in which she signs every entry, Anxiously Yours. She wrote a sequel to her Bat Mitzvah book titled, We're So Crashing Your Bat Mitzvah, among a total of 13 published books, 10 of them for children. And she's written prolifically, both fiction and nonfiction, for publications such as the New York Times and the New York Times Magazine. Stern said she got through the pandemic by joining a Jewish meditation group. She also hopes to celebrate her own Hebrew naming ceremony at some point in the future. On July 19, the author left therapy after 23 years because I was ready to face life alone, she said. Her psychologist agreed. I'm not cured of all the things inside of me that caused me to struggle, but I'm well equipped to deal with them, Stern said. And she's pleased about the re-release of her bat book. I'm happy that it gets another spin in the world, she said. I don't think there's a ton of stuff out there for Jewish teens, and I'm happy to contribute to that. That was Rite of Passage by Naomi Fefferman from the Arts section. Now we go on to the Communities section, and this is called Synagogues in Transition the transition of leadership whether in politics business or spirituality can be a jarring affair for its constituents that bring up the best and worst in people by k c j adler change always is of concern to people i don't know if everyone acknowledges it but that's my view of the world linda comrades said over the phone As a long-time congregate of Sinai Temple, she speculated about the conflicted feelings of her fellow worshippers as Rabbi Wolpe, an internationally recognized spiritual leader, stepped down from the Bema. However, like much of the leadership at Sinai I spoke to, she echoed a familiar refrain about hope for the future and feeling blessed in the hands of Rabbi Nicole Gusick and Erez Sherman. The transition of leadership, whether in politics, business, or spirituality, can be a jarring affair for its constituents that bring up the best and worst in people. The ugly episode between Rabbi Goldschmidt and Rabbi Sh- uh, Schneier over the future of the prominent Park East Synagogue in 2021 marked an example of such str- uh, transitional failure. Some congregants filed accusations of criminal improperty were levied uh, Some congregants fled, accusations of criminal impropriety were levied, and even an Israeli government minister publicly uh, opined A schism formed in their community, and Rabbi Goldschmidt founded a new synagogue in 2022. In order to stop such acrimonious situations from festering, synagogues need a robust conversation between clergy, lay leaders, and congregants to help make such transitions as seamless as possible. To learn how synagogues handle times of transition, I spoke with members of Sinai Temple, Valley Beth Shalom, and Wilshire Boulevard Temple. For Rabbis Gusick and Sherman of Sinai Temple, the relationship between clergy and congregant is like a marriage, where direct and open communication are the most important tools. The analogy is apt for their approach, as not only are they married themselves, but Rabbi Gusick also received a master's degree in marriage and family therapy during the pandemic. I think it's a mass matter of being as transparent as possible, Rabbi Gusick said over Zoom. In any kind of change, if the other party feels comfortable and safe, the more you're able to communicate. Nicole's been here over 15 years, and I've been here for 10 years, Rabbi Sherman said, jumping into the shared Zoom screen. So we know the community, and the community knows us. It was less about something new and while about continuing a legacy, the tradition that Rabbi Wolpe brought into the 21st century in a our unique way. Responding to my question in a fast-paced husband-wife tag team style, Rabbi Gusick leaped in on cue. She explained that from the outset of their journey towards senior leadership, they were upfront, they were upfront with community members in the backyard of their home. We told them, you will be hearing from us over the next 3 months about what it is we plan on doing, and what goals we plan on achieving over the course of the year and over the next three to five years. Most importantly, she emphasized to their congregants that they wouldn't keep their rabbinic vision a surprise. Sinai Temple, a conservative synagogue, has one of the most diverse congregations in terms of politics, age, and ethnicity. In response to my question about the pushback from various factions within their community, Kamra said in a separate interview, I was never the recipient of any negative pushback. But, you know, intellectually, I'm sure there are some in the congregation that would have those feelings. It's just the way things go everywhere, whether it's in business or the Jewish community. For Wilshire Boulevard Temple, Rabbi Elisa Ben Naim expressed that it is not necessarily about a singular leader instructing their flock, but a community and an experience. There's nothing a leader can do if the parking or security is horrible, Rabbi Ben Naim said in an impromptu phase chat. Her feeling is that a spiritual leader in any congregation acts as a conduit for a transcendental experience. But there isn't a sermon great enough to make members stay if the rest of their experience is abysmal. It's the people that you're sitting in a classroom uh, with, with or in community and in partnership who are most important, she continued. I think that At the Wilshire Boulevard Temple, if a leader were to stand up and be completely opposite to the core values of the gathered individuals, even if they have an amazing personality, if they don't speak a certain kind of truth and gather people in honesty, they're not going to be successful. If a leader stands up and preaches the Bible of the pickles, it may be very beautiful, but if it doesn't resonate with the people, he's not going to get very far. Across these three historic Los Angeles synagogues, the major thread I continue to hear throughout the interviews is that the power lies with the people. I didn't join a temple because of the rabbi, Camera said, and it's always been my view that it's up to the member in any organization to make sure that they are involved in whatever way their, need, their needs are met. A lot of responsibility rests with the members. Anna Teneblat, interim president at Sinai Temple, agreed over the phone. There's a phrase in the Torah, the Ten Commandments are not in heaven, they are down here with the people. Anna explained that in choosing a new rabbi for any congregation, there are times when communities go to the opposite extreme. Prior to Rabbi Wolfe, we had someone else there uh, and, um, someone else, and there were issues. People didn't like his sermons, they didn't like this or that, he wasn't Jewish enough, it was too secular. So Some people always put a list together and it's always the opposite kind of list. However, Rabbi Wolke's leadership has brought great recognition to to Sinai Temple, and he continues to be a beloved figure to the congregation, so to replace him would be nearly impossible. It's very difficult. You can't replicate a a leader, but everyone was familiar enough with Rabbi Gusick and Sherman to understand what they would bring to the table, their warm, their community-building, their love of learning and of Judaism. They were known quantities. Rabbi Nolan Lebovitz, senior rabbi of Valley Beth Shalom, responded over email that the key to a successful transition is overlapping eras of leaders. PBS offers a different model of transition than other congregations because Rabbi Feinstein has not stepped away. He has decided to step back to a certain extent. We work together. This model replicates the transition between Rabbi Schulweis and Rabbi Feinstein. He is an incredible sounding board for an institutional history and for advice. Many of these conversations eventually found their way to reference Moses, who set an admirable example for leaders in transition. Rabbi Gusick spoke with excitement and pulpit pride when she related her experience to that one of the Jewish people's great patriarchs. So much of the last year and a half, Erez, and I have been thinking about Moses and Joshua. And the idea of Moses really lifting Joshua up as the leader that B'nai Israel needed at the moment. In fact, I remember when Rabbi Wolpe first introduced this idea of his retirement. It was very subtle, but it referenced Moses and Joshua and that a great leader sets up the next great leader. That's what leadership is. Perhaps it was also her own subtle way of emphasizing Sinai... uh, Sinai Temple's motto, and blaze on the outside of the building, Le Dor Vidor, which means from generation to generation. Keeping to the philosophy is that it is a community. The people themselves, who are the most essential, Rabbi Ben Naim of Wilshire Boulevard Temple, had her own take on Jewish leadership. There are so many vast differences within the Jewish tradition. The most quintessential is Moses, who appointed chosen because of his ability to leave space and room for the spiritual experience and not to have have to rely entirely upon Moses as the leader. The equation of mentorship is that the person that is involved in the spiritual experience is the biggest part of that equation. So it's not Abraham, it's not Sarah, it's not Moses, it's not Miriam, it's not uh, any one particular person. Echoing her, sentiment, <clears throat> echoing her sentiment, Rabbi Leibovitz wrote, For me, being a leader of a congregation means enacting a spirit of Judaism that will appeal to our community moving forward. While our Torah remains our bedrock, great rabbis have always been able to deliver its, its, its an eternal wisdom to an ever-changing world. In some ways, the vision of the synagogue of tomorrow has to appeal to the world of tomorrow. In other ways, the synagogue must remain counter-cultural, holding fast to the eternal truths of our people. It's my job to find the right balance between those two competing forces. It is clear that the rabbis see the people as the key to a successful transition and in maintaining the shared uh, strands of the congregants as the ultimate decider. Rabbi Gusek, in a bit of hope and warning, returned to her familiar metaphor of clergy and congregant. In any marriage, dreams can change and expectations can change. And often failed marriages exist when one couple or one partner decides to stop sharing or articulate their dream. And so really, it's an invitation at the start of the marriage to say, we're going to share our dreams and we want you to share yours. Like much of Jewish history, there will no doubt be more uh, changes, disruptions, and transitions that each of these communities must handle in togetherness. Cameras asserted the unwavering ability of her fellow congregants to weather any storm, and come out a better come out better for it, whether it be the pandemic fundraising or a new rabbi. That was Synagogues in Transition by Casey J. Adler from the Community section, and these are articles from J. Living Celebrations issue twenty twenty three. All right, now let's turn to the Jewish Journal. For August 18th through the 24th, 2023. And we start off with the editor's notes section. This is called Memories of an Old New Republic by David Suisa. There was a time when writers cared more about the truth than their status. When reason and respect debate were privileged over trendy ideology and virtual signaling. When critical thinking and analysis were honored more than branding and, and influencers. This is how Karen Lemon Block begins her cover story this week on the Impressible, Martin Peretz's new memoir, The Conversationalist, Arguments with Everyone, Left, Right, and Center. This story is close to my heart because it revolves around The New Republic, a weekly magazine I fell in love with in the 1990s and that I dearly miss today. Among other things, I could always count on TNR for intelligent, surprising analysis rather than today's predictable political bias. In this fragile and tribalized era, a magazine that puts intelligent analysis above political bias sounds downright quaint. The pol- this political bias, however, has had a troubling effect on our journalism in at least three ways. One, a loss of trust. If I feel that a writer or publication will bash only the other side, but rarely if ever their own side, I don't trust them. Their objective is not to pursue truth but to help with one side, help one side win. The truth doesn't care who wins. The truth itself is a victory. A second effect is boredom. Ideolog- ideological bias makes journalism dull and predictable. If I feel that a writer is wearing a uniform for a political party, I doze off. Nothing he or she writes will ever surprise me. These are writers at the mercy of a political agenda, which makes them the most boring kind of writers. In its heyday, under the ownership of Martin Peretz, TNR was anything but boring. I would read a biography of John Adams that got rave reviews, for example, and then it opened TNR to discover a brilliant dissenting take on the book. In addition to TNR's well-known and well-earned popularity in The Hales of Power, its lesser-known quality was its delivery of sheer intellectual delight. Everything from politics to culture aimed to provoke thought Its secret motto could have well been Thou shalt never bore. The third troubling effect of political bias has been an erosion of culture. Politics seems everywhere to have swamped culture, Joseph Epstein wrote in this month's commentary. It has not merely overwhelmed culture as a subject of interest, but has infiltrated it through uh, political identity and correctness. Culture seeks out the best in irrespective of race, color, or or creed. Contemporary politics put diversity, inclusiveness, equity above quality, and respects only the divisions of race, color, and creed. Epstein cites examples of general interest magazines like the old TNR, which have become more and more political in character. The New Yorker, for example, never descended to the level of party politics until the turn of the new century when it began attacking George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, laid off Barack Obama, and went into high dudgeon against Donald Trump. In doing so, the magazine has lost a cultural authority, the authority that comes with being above the ruck. Being above the ruck means being unafraid to embrace the complex truth wherever it takes you. As Block writes, TNR was both influential and well-respected precisely because of its its complexity, its willingness to call out both sides. The book highlights the influence of Jewish intellectuals to that golden age of vigorous, journalis- vigorous journalism, offering a chance, Block writes, to revisit a huge important time in both Jewish and American history, and a uh, Jewish intellectuals previously shut out by both universities and established magazines were finally given a respected platform to dissect and devise important ideas. It's sad, surely that so many of today's Jewish intellectuals seem to have fallen under the mainstream spell of political and ideological bias. But let's not be too surprised. This is yet another sign of how safe, safely, uh, assimilated, uh, safely assimilated our Jewish intellectuals have become. They're no longer the rebels trying to break through forbidden doors, now they're conformists keeping the rebels out. With, will Jewish intellectuals ever regain their descending mojo? There are more than a few courageous Jewish voices out there who are trying, among them TNR alumni. As Bloch writes, Peretz ends the book with faith in the peoples he, people he's taught and worked with. And the truth is, most of us who work there will never be silent about how far journalism has fallen and the dangers of extremism and insipid ideology. We will continue to try to reteach the world the true meaning of liberalism. Amen to that. Our New Republic needs it. That was Memories of an Old New Republic by David Suisa from the Editor's Notes section. We go now to the Condonist section. This is called If Only the Agent Jews Knew About Jamie Foxx by Tabby Raphael. Oscar winner Jamie Foxx recently asked his nearly 17 million Instagram followers, They killed this dude named Jesus. What do you think they'll do to you? Hashtag fake France, hashtag fake love. One day later, Fox deleted the post and wrote, I want to apologize to the Jewish community and everyone who was offended by my post, adding that he was betrayed by a fake friend, and that's what I meant uh, with with they, not, any, not anymore. I can't read Fox's mind, but since the idea that the Jews killed Jesus is one of the most publicized false truths in human history, I wasn't surprised by how many people on social media believed he was alluding to Jews. So let me offer a few responses. What do you think they'll do to you? Well, for starters, we'll make you some amazing movies, shows, and works of music and art. We'll give you and the world monotheism, then spend the rest of our born days scared of our mothers. We're the reason a hillbilly in rural Kentucky knows to say oy vey and anti Semites in Syria love fauda but can't admit it. And of course, we gave the world Mel Brooks. But let me go a step further and muse over another question. What would have have happened if, had our ancient Jews anticipated that they would be blamed for Jesus' death in the decades, centuries, and millennia after he died? And then, perhaps due to having consumed a copious amount of caffeinated cardamom tea late at night, I wondered what a conversation between the twelve Jewish disciples would have sounded like in the days and hours before the Romans crucified Jesus. The following is not meant to offend either Christians or Jews. Crucifixion isn't funny. It was a sign of Roman cruelty and insecurity. But what happened to Jews for two millennia after his death is another matter. One that still involves Jews today. A.D. 30-something Andrew Simon, call everyone to the table. I have terrible news. Simon Andrew Simon, answer me, brother. Simon I told you i go by Peter now. I don't know who this Simon is, but Peter can help. Andrew. All right, Peter. Call everyone together at once. Minutes later. Andrew. I have terrible news. Reb Yeshua has been sentenced to death by the wicked doers, the Romans, who have wreaked havoc on us all. Shouts and cries erupt. John. It's true that Reb Yeshua, Jesus, has rubbed some of our elders the wrong way, but this is a tragedy beyond description. Philip. Woe to us all. Bartholomew, let them take me. Please, let them take me. Andrew, James, you seem to have a question. John, pardon me, pardon me, Andrew, but which James are you referring to? James, son of Zebedee, or James, son of Alphaeus? Andrew, Zebedee's hands seem to have gone up first. Yes, James, what is it? James, my morning has already commenced, despite the fact that our darkest hour of loss has not yet arrived. However, I cannot help but ask Andrew, yes, James. Well this is it's just that Thomas, say it, friend, and we will and will someone please wake up Thaddeus The disciples shake Thaddeus, who expresses horror and sorrow upon hearing the news. James Well I plead your forgiveness for my poorly timed callousness, but is there any chance that we would be blamed for this? Simon the Zealot, not to be confused with Simon who was called Peter, blamed for what? James, for the death of Jesus, I'm afraid. The other disciples scoff and shake their heads. Thomas, you mean that we, disciples, would be blamed? James, well not exactly, but you know we that is we as in we men? James, for Pete's sake, we as in Jews. Peter, please don't request anything for my sake. I hate when people do that. And how could we blame for this we be blamed for this tragedy? The traditional Jews don't even recognize us as belonging to the Judean tribes anymore. James, I know, but you've never asked yourself whether now or in the future Jews would be collectively punished for something? Andrew, to be honest, I don't even think we'll be around for more than a few decades more. The future, whether by 200 or 2,000 years, will belong to the Romans and their descendants. All anyone will remember about the Jews will be the Ten Commandments and that Methuselah died when he was 969. Matthew. It's not like we're that popular now, and I'm noticing a lot of bad stereotypes around us. I can't even go anywhere without someone calling me Matthew the Tax Collector. James. What's wrong with that? You were a tax collector before Jesus found you. Matthew. I know, but something about that just doesn't sit well with me. Am I the only one? Doesn't Matthew the Tax Collector who happens to be Jewish sound a bit off? Andrew. We don't have time for this nonsense. In a few hours, our teacher and the emblem of kindness will perish. Simon, why are you eating at a time like this? Simon, forgive me. Passover and Shabbat are starting tonight, and my wife prepared healthy matzah with what appeared to be flour, water, and beet juice. I wanted wanted to take it beforehand. John, is that why it looks red? Simon, yes, I can't eat it. To be frank, it looks like blood. Philip, you're overreacting. No one would ever accuse a Jew of using blood in their matzah. The world has not lost its mind, Simon. It's not that, not that, not is it that bigoted. Bartholomew, friends, even if the Jews were to be blamed for this terrible death, we would be immune, wouldn't we? It's not as if in the eyes of our enemies, a Jew was a Jew regardless of whether he or she strictly observed Jewish laws, is it? The disciples shake their heads in vigorous agreement that a Jew is not a Jew. John, perhaps the world will only blame Judas Iscariot. Andrew, but he is a Jew. John, oh, right. Friends, we are worrying over nothing. The Romans are the wave of the future. Maybe Jews will be blamed for a few years, but we simply won't be around long enough to survive. If the Jews outlive the Romans and everyone else, then I predict that one day we will also have driverless chariots and chocolate hummus. Clamoring and shouts of perish the thought. Andrew, we must end this idle chatter. This is a sorrowful, terrible night. Those are just some of the conversations produced by my imagination when I thought about whether Jews in the time of Jesus, even the rebellious ones, had an inkling about the blood libels of the Jewish future. Eventually, I decided to call it a night, but not before praying for the souls of all the Jews who have perished as a result of fake accusations over millennia and asking God to protect us from harsh words and harsh actions today. As far as Jamie Foxx goes, I hope he'll learn that when someone betrays you, best to keep the other dudes out of it, even a dude named Jesus. Otherwise, what do you think he'll do to you? That was If Only the Ancient Jews Knew About Jamie Foxx by Tebby Raphael from the columnist section. Tebby Raphael is an award-winning writer, speaker, and weekly columnist for the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. Follow her on Instagram and X, Twitter sounded better, at Tebby Raphael. And also from the columnist section, this is called Dealing with Anti-Israel Left by Dan Schnur. In a hyperpartisan, highly polarized red versus blue America, the politics of Israel and the Middle East in general have always been complicated. Rather than breaking down neatly along party lines, there are profound divisions within both Republican and Democratic ranks on issues relating to the U.S. role in the Middle East. We'll discuss the intramural GOP fight at another time, but it's beginning to look like the early action in next year's election cycle will be in Democratic House primaries. The great majority of Democrats and Congress are reliably pro-Israel, but the numbers of those who vote against the interests of the Jewish state are growing, and it appears that the American Israel Public Affairs Committee has decided to it's time to push back harder. The Jewish Insider reported last week Uh, reported last week that AIPAC is escalating its efforts to take on Democratic incumbents who have stood against Israel, actively recruiting candidates to run against Representatives Elon Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, and Jamal Bauman, Democrat of New York. In the past, AIPAC has given some support to challengers against anti-Israel officeholders, but has kept a relatively low profile to avoid becoming a target for progressive activists in those districts. But by telegraphing their intentions so early against Omar and Bauman, the pro-Israel group is making it clear that they are willing to be on the receiving end of attacks from the opposition if that's what will will be acquired to achieve their goals. The opposition is more than than happy to oblige. De facto squad leader Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, sent out a fundraising appeal on Bauman's behalf last week, that featured the warning phrase, "APAC is at it again. In the message, Ocasio-Cortez revisited some of the attacks she had leveled against APAC in the past and accused the organization of plans to target progressive working-class candidates of color. This fight is going to get louder and nastier in the months ahead. The result would be an even sharper divide between the Democrats' progressive base and establishment center over the Jewish state at a time when the Biden administration has prioritized a possible security accord between the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Israel, and as Democratic leaders tried to prioritize party unity heading into next year's election. Last year, APEC found itself in the crosshairs of many Democratic voters when its political action committee endorsed 37 Republicans who had voted against the certification of Joe Biden's election. The organization's leaders correctly pointed out that support for Israel is the only criterion for their endorsement and that the PAC supported roughly an equal number of candidates from both parties. Not surprisingly, an American Jewish community that votes heavily Democratic in most elections vehemently expressed its unhappiness. But Apex's job is to build relationships among Israel backers in both parties, and they stood their ground. But making friends represents one type of political challenge. Making enemies is another. To be fair, it's not as if APAC were hunting for incumbents to target for defeat. The original squad has now roughly tripled in size. Nine House members voted against a resolution last month stating that the state of Israel is not a racist or apartheid state, which is a fairly low bar for measuring anti-Israel sentiment. Several other members have signed on to a variety of other bills, that financially or rhetorically target the Jewish state. As progressives within the Democratic caucus continue to gain strength, this challenge will almost certainly increase. Apex Public Pushbacks is designed not only to discourage current members from this type of behavior, but to warn others tempted to join their ranks that the political consequences of this brand of anti Zionism would be severe. Republicans have their own problems with their most ideologically extreme members, including a former president who has been soft-peddling criticism of the Charlottesville rioters for several years. The ugly nationalism that oozes into bigotry and anti-Semitism on the far right is a growing threat. But American Jews are well-practiced and comfortable fighting against an an ultra-conservative menace. Standing up to the far left is less instinctual but just as necessary. That was dealing with anti-Israel left by Dan Schnur from the Columnist section. Dan Schnur is the politics editor for the Jewish Journal. He teaches courses of politics, communications, and leadership at UC Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. He hosts the monthly webinar, the Dan Schnur Political Report, for the Los Angeles World Affairs Council and Town Hall. Follow Dan's work at www.danschnurpolitics.com. And again from the columnist section, this is called Approaching Judaism with Love by Kylie Aura Lobel. I recently watched a video of a rabbi who warned about falling into the hands of the evil Satan and the dark forces that are at work in this world. I quickly clicked off because I don't identify with that kind of Judaism, the kind where we focus on the ills of society and put fear above all else. Instead, I approach Judaism with love. While every Jew should have a healthy fear of God, that fear should not be the main motivator of their observance. Serving God out of pure fear is not the way. It can make you resentful and cause you to become miserable. It may very well backfire, and it can be a stumbling block to having a true faith. Our relationship to God is compared to that of our relationship with the Father. On the one hand, you must respect your Father. He can lay down the law and decide what happens when you stray from the path. On the other hand, your father is a great source of comfort and care. He brings you closer when you need it the most, and is always there for you. I could, I chose to, I chose to convert to Judaism after experiencing the incredible love I felt at my local habad during a Friday night dinner. The rabbi knew that his guests weren't observant, but he didn't admonish us or tell us we were going, we were doing something wrong. Instead, he was non-judgmental when he welcomed us in showing us the beauty of Shabbat and the observe, and observing of the mitzvot. I was so compelled by this rabbi's loving attitude that I wanted to go back every week and learn more about Judaism. The love I felt at that Chabad house set the tone for how I observed Judaism. It was so different from the Catholicism my grandmother taught me, which at a young age felt very dark and scary. I was going to hell if I wasn't baptized? I was born in sin? I know today that Catholicism is not all dark, but as a child it sure did feel heavy. I didn't connect with that fire and brimstone aspect of it. I needed a gentler approach to faith. Every day, I am reminded of the love God has for me and feel blessed and grateful. I look around and I can't believe that I live the life I do. I truly don't know what I did do to deserve, what I did to deserve this. What I do know is that this love is a two way street. Just, at the, just look at the Shema, which commands us to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. It's critical to feel that love, like the love we have for our spouses, our children, our family, and our friends. But it's also important to show that we love Him by taking action, by keeping the mitzvot, doing good deeds, and fulfilling our personal mission to make the world a better place. God communicated His love for us by giving us His Torah, the guidebook for a meaningful life. He wants us to be joyful and He shows us how to achieve that. When things are going wrong in my life, I believe that God is telling me something. Perhaps He's protecting me or putting me on a better path. He's showing me how to build up my resilience and be strong when life becomes complicated. But I know, above all else, that God is acting out of love. When I picture heaven, it's where my soul will feel everlasting warmth and it's finally closed with God the source of all love. I want God to be happy with me and I do my best when it comes to observance. But I know that if I mess up, he will still love me. As long as I try to do better the next time, try to refine my character and improve upon myself, he will be there to welcome me with open arms to get me back to my soul's true purpose and to be receptive to the eternal love he has to offer. What's your approach to Judaism? Email me Kylie O. L. at JewishJournal.com. That was Approaching Judaism with Love by Kylie Orla Lobel. from the Columnist section. Kylie Orla Lobel is the community editor of the Jewish Journal. Right, and again from the Columnist section, this is called Lucky and Morocca by Christine Shira Sheikhs. A bedridden woman in my tight knit Jewish community had an emergency in The small gray and white mutt needed minor but urgent surgery on her shoulder. Could you take care of Maraca while she heals, she asked. Sure, I can take care of my place for a couple of weeks, I said. Months before I had to... Months before I had tried to gently persuade her to let me find a loving home for Maraca. I only trust you. I won't give my dog to a family I don't know, she responded. I wasn't the family I had in mind. I had my own dog a rather handsome, sweet, large black retriever by the name of Lucky. I lived in an apartment and needed another dog like a hole in the head. Dr. it! though, even with stitches in her shoulder, Morocco was such a happy dog. I had to laugh when I looked over at her in the middle of the night and she was sprawled out on Lucky's doggy bed like she was at the Ritz. I began to wonder if I should just keep her. What's one more dog, right?' Even though Morocco was firmly in her twilight years, she would sprint to the door like a rocket to join Lucky and me on our daily walks around the Pico-Robertson area of Los Angeles. You really want to get to know your community? Get a dog. Even the homeless gentleman on my corner became acquainted with us, yelling out to me, Hey, Morocco doesn't have a, her cone on anymore. Now three, of, the, now three of The now three of us would greet people on their way to Davin Shaharit. I had three rabbis on my block alone. I'd bake challah from various people we'd meet on our walking adventures. That was a sight. Me juggling bags of warm challah and two dogs while ducking into the coffee bee. More than once, I've spilled a fresh, freshly made mocha ice blended, otherwise known as a chocolate shake, down the front of my blouse. In the blink of an eye, two years had passed. Then it happened. Lucky became ill over Shabbat. By uh, by Monday, a major organ was failing. He was gone by Tuesday. The word sadness doesn't even begin to cover it. I walked into the coffee bean the day after he died and sat down. A homeless man in the neighborhood came up to me asking, Where is? Mid-sentence, he stopped cold, seeing the pain look on my face. There was only one reason why Lucky wasn't with me. Yes, I kissed the ground that I still had Moraka. Who who, by the way, marched right up to Lucky and kissed him on the mouth right before he died. Considering their size variance, that was no mean feat. I suddenly realized how much she had loved him. You know what? You know how I know? Moraka died within a week of him. She had starved off her, her own off her own mortality by sheer will and her love of Lucky. Coincidence is not the Jewish wheelhouse. A love story was right in front of me and I didn't see it! The next morning I laid in bed and moaned out loud. Out of desperation I grabbed my roommate's dog because I just had to get out of the house and walk. I exhaled the minute my feet hit the pavement. How do I work through this? I wondered as I headed down Olympic Boulevard. How do I value life while mourning the love of someone who is no longer with me? Is a dog someone? Through my tears I tried to focus on celebrating the life of both dogs, the sheer joy they brought me and my community. Admittedly, I didn't fully appreciate the 1,095 doggy walks a year I counted until it was too late. Rituals create connection, and I'm determined to appreciate those connections in real time from here on out. I had taken both dogs as a mitzvah for other people, when in fact I was the one who had received the biggest mitzvah of all. That was Lucky and Morocca by Christine Shira Sheiks from the columnist section. Christine Shira Sheiks is a film producer and currently finishing her memoir, A Wandering Shiksa. And again from the columnist section, this is called "Morning to Dance, Waiting and Ho- Morning to Dancing, Waiting and Hoping" by Rabbi Yoshi Zwelbach. There have been many times in my career when I've officiated a Brit Milah ceremony in the morning. Morning in the morning, at a funeral in the afternoon. Sometimes sorrow and joy come together in powerful and unexpected ways. Every year around this time, sorrow and joy meet by design. A few weeks ago, we commemorated Tisha, Tisha B'Av, a day of painful rem- remembrance. On the 9th of Av, it was decreed upon our ancestors that they would all die in the wilderness and not enter Eretz Yisrael. And the temple was destroyed the first time, in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, and the second time by the Romans, and and Bethar was captured, and the city of Jerusalem was plowed, as a sign that it would never be rebuilt. Talmud, Taanit, twenty six b, and then, just six days after our morning came came after our morning came joy, the fifteenth day of the month of Ab is a time of celebration, according to Rabbi Shimon ben Gamil, there were no days as joyous for the Jewish people as the 15th of Av. Why? At this time, in days of old, members of the different tribes of Israel were permitted to marry one another. At other times though, the year, uh, throughout, the, other times throughout the year, apparently one would be required to wed within the tribe. But on this one day, a young man from the tribe of Dan in the north of Israel could marry a maiden from the tribe of Benjamin in Judea. It's not simply a time when a couple might come together to build a new family. It's a time when a diverse and sometimes desperate group of people come together as one. These two days are polar opposites. Tisha B'Av is about disunity, discord, and division. According to the rabbis of the Talmud, the second temple was destroyed on account of sinat chinim, senseless hatred. From their perspective, it was the Romans or power politics. It was our own internal divisions that led to our downfall. On the other hand, to BeAv <clears throat> is about harmony, and amity, and unison. The distinct and varied tribes of Israel come together in love. On this one day, we come to the collective realization that all these petty divisions are simply ridiculous. We are B'nai Yisrael, the people of Israel, Sisters and brothers whose best and perhaps only hope for redemption can be found in one another. One of the sages of the Talmud, Tanit 30, 31A, views this moment in a messianic redemptive way. Rabbi Elazar, who lived soon after the destruction of the Second Temple, saw firsthand just how divided the Jewish people were, and imagines a moment in the distant future when all Israel will come together for a celebration a dance of the righteous, as he so beautifully put it. He likely was imagining a wedding dance, a giant giant uh, horror in which all Israel circles bride and groom hand in hand. And at that joyous moment, Rabbi Elazar imagines us all singing the words of the prophet Isaiah. This is the eternal for whom we waited. We will be glad and rejoice in God's salvation. Isaiah 25, 9. It's so achingly beautiful to me. A circle of unity. No one in front and no one behind. The circle can always be expanded to make room for one more. No one need be left behind, no one forgotten. There is a place for each and every Jew, but the time for the realization of such a vision has sadly not yet arrived. And one especially significant Hebrew word in that verse from Isaiah hints at this. The root for this waiting for the eternal is the same one that forms the word tikvah, hope. In times such as these, when we see Israel and the Jewish people so deeply divided, we imagine a future that will culminate not in division or destruction, but rather in joy, unity, and love. This is our tikvah. This is our hope. And while we know it will take time and demand patience, we will not wait passively or silently for it. We will work for it uh, urgently and passionately, reaching out to each other in love, celebrating each other's simchas and standing hand-in-hand at moments of sorrow. Morning to Dancing, a great circle of life and love. That was Morning to Dancing, Waiting and Hoping by Rabbi Yoshi Zuelbeck from the columnist section. Rabbi Yoshi Zuelbeck is the senior rabbi of Stephen Weiss Temple in Los Angeles. And we got now to the My Turns section. This is called My Visit to Camp Ramah in Ukraine by David Kext. How did I end up visiting a Jewish summer camp at the war-torn country of Ukraine? Last October, I saw a video of a camp Ramah in Ukraine called Camp Ramah Yahad and was transfixed. Campers who looked like they were from Camp Ramah in Ohio, having a horrific war, having uh, the time of their lives, but living through a horrific war when civilians are being targeted and their homes are being destroyed. I wanted to go there to see it for myself and to show the campers that they are part of something larger, a worldwide Jewish community that doesn't leave anyone behind. My family and friends thought I was crazy. It's a war zone, you're a father, but I was undeterred. Fortunately, I was not alone. Two friends from LA and others from Philadelphia and Israel wanted to join me, including Rabbi Lenoid Feldman, the longtime rabbi of Palm Beach's Temple Beth El and fluent Russian speaker. He was born in Moldova during the Soviet era, and by David Gol- Golinkin, president of the Schechter Institutes of Jerusalem, which runs the camp. Our goal? To spend a Shabbat at the camp. Shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Golinkin's Schechter Institutes established the camp, as well as a series of community centers and schools in four cities across Ukraine. With an unknown number of Jews, estimated between 100,000 to 200,000 people, Schechter thought it could have a deep impact, and it has, And I was, as I was soon to witness firsthand. After days of travel to cross the Ukrainian border by bus, we arrived at the small Ukrainian resort near Hrndavitsy Her- in southwestern Ukraine, where the camp was being held this summer around midday on Friday, August 4th. Waiting to welcome us were Rabbi Irina Gretsevitskaya, the director of the camp, and Igor Babkin, the camp's director. Rabbi Irina, as she is called, oversees Schechter's operations in Ukraine, in addition to Nev Schechter in Tel Aviv. She is tireless and committed, brimming with joy and enthusiasm, a smile on her face. Igor is a native of Ukraine who now lives in Israel. With a twinkle in his eye and a booming voice, perfect for addressing a camp full of kids, he never speaks sharply, only with love. He brings a combination of humor, passion, and a nurturing soul to, uh, to camp. When he is not at camp, he spends his days helping at-risk teens. We walked outside to tour the camp. Our first stop was at a meeting with the Ma- Madrahim counselors. One by one, we introduced ourselves. Most Ukrainians speak Russian and Ukrainian fluently and the Madrachim were no exception, also speaking surprisingly fluent Hebrew from Schechter Institute schools and they attended. But as we learned, this was a country experiencing a national awakening. They would rather speak broken English than fluent Russian. After making introductions, we tour the Hugim activities in progress. First stop, a first aid class. One of the two doctors on staff this summer was showing kids what to do When someone loses an arm or a leg, starting with the best bandage to use to staunch the flow of blood. As a madrig accompanying us to explain, you have to stop the blood loss, which is huge if it's a leg. So the most important thing that volunteers are buying or asking for is this kind of bandage. The doctor then showed the campers how to apply our tuna Next, we moved on to a baking class taking place inside the main building. There, a young boy around 11 years old and transfixed by his phone said, without once looking away from the screen, Hi, my name is Danny. Would you like to see these videos I shot? Our hearts broke as he showed us videos he he took showing apartment buildings less than a kilometer from his home, all heavily damaged by missiles and the hood of a car that had been shredded by shrapnel. Danny told us he's from Kharkiv which we knew had seen some of the most intense fighting of the war since the invasion began, with Russia targeting population centers with cluster munitions, missiles, and artillery. Later, I saw Danny was glued to his phone again. When I mentioned it to Rabbi Irina, she assured me that people like Danny receive the support they need from a staff psychologist. Many campers are refugees, like Danny, and many of them living in Poland, Germany, and other European countries, and in Israel. Two campers living with families in Spain traveled for five days by train to join their friends at camp. Next, we watched an art and dance class. In the latter, about 20 people were doing a synchronized dance to a popular Israeli song. To our surprise, the irrepressible Irina jumped right in and knew all the moves. At Kabbalat Shabbat services, The campers sang and performed dances and skits with typical nervous giggling from younger campers with the enthusiasm and ruach spirit one would expect to see from any happy camper. Waves of campers presented us with gifts, including a poster with the message, Thanks for visiting our dear Ramah Yahad, a place where every summer a new chapter of our fairy tale begins and hamsas made by the campers. Before lighting Shabbat candles together, we took a moment to introduce ourselves through, Le- Leo- through Leonid. In his impish uh, fashion, Leonid introduced fellow traveler from L.A. Jonathan Anschel, general counsel of Mattel, as Barbie producer. Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie would have not elicited more excitement than did this announcement. As soon as the service ended, dozens of campers swarmed Jonathan to take selfies with him. Have you met Margot Robbie? Have you met Ryan Gosling? Jonathan, as always, was a terrific sport and posed for selfies and accepted hugs from the kids. But Jonathan wasn't the only celebrity. Really, we all were. The campers posed for selfies with all of us and dispensed hundreds of hugs. They were just excited that a bunch of Americans flew halfway around the world to be with them. One camper, who was about 10 years old, repeatedly emerged from the crowd throughout our stay to give us hugs. He never said anything, really, Though I kept thanking him and telling him how nice it was to see him again. I'm not sure how much he understood, and he didn't say much back. I think the hugs conveyed everything he needed to know and wanted to tell me. After lighting candles and enjoying a sumptuous Shabbat dinner, the entire Hadar Ohel dining hall was filled with singing and slapping of tables as everyone recited the Berkat Hamazon, Grace After Meals. Afterward the campers, counselors, and even some staff joined hands and danced with pure joy around the entire Hadar Okay. The following morning, a twelve year old girl was reading from the Torah for the first time. Afterward she was so overcome with emotion that she broke down and cried. Luckily her mother was present, she lives nearby lives in nearby Chernifsky, and they hugged for a long time, rocking back and forth and sobbing in joy. After Shabbat lunch, the camp assembled in rows of chairs and we answered questions from the campers. One asked why we came to Camp Ramah Yahat. I told them that we wanted to show our support and that the Jewish people are connected to each other wherever they live. Later, we spoke to the kids in breakout sessions where we could connect to the campers in smaller groups. I found myself learning their names and learning about their lives. The campers were eager to learn about America. We hear there was a lot of crime in America. Have you ever been robbed? What is the average salary in America? What does private school tuition cost in America? Do you have to wear uniforms to school? Who's the biggest pop star in America? A little boy sitting immediately to my left asked, Were you ever bullied? Another, Amer- another asked, Does America have the strongest army in the world? This I answered in the affirmative, in part to reassure the campers uh, who, of course, know, that America is standing behind Ukraine. In a world of Hitler and Vladimir Putins, America has the job of maintaining the strongest army. It's like the Wild West and America is the sheriff," I explained. I hope someday this won't be necessary. The 90 minutes allotted to the breakout sessions went very quickly and before I knew it, we were summoned to a Havdalah ceremony starting under under some uh, trees nearby. The campers formed two or three concentric circles and held hands. As we approached, the campers spontaneously opened their the outer circle and invited us to join them, alternately holding uh, hands or standing with arms around over each other's shoulders. As in any camp, Ramah, Havdalah was a special time and the Ruach again manifested itself in the joyful singing of all the campers. After the candle flame was extinguished, My fellow travelers and I were swamped by kids requesting selfies and hugs. We each must have received a hundred hugs a day. And also something new, requests to sign the shirts on their backs or their baseball caps or even the backs of their hands. They even had permanent ink markers at the ready. Unable to come up with anything more clever, I wrote Heart from America on every shirt, hat, and hand that was offered. As if instinctively, the camper suddenly turned away and migrated through a path in the nearby forest down to a small lake. As he walked after, after them, I tried to engage Igor a bit to learn more about him. I noticed that throughout our visit, he kept opening doors for us and saying in his booming voice, welcome to the Hotel California. So I asked him what his favorite band is. The Beatles, he replied. Which song is your favorite, I asked. Yesterday. Then he proceeded to sing the lyrics. Yesterday, all our troubles seem so far away. I was impressed. He knew the words instantly in English, and he had a nice voice. Good choice, I thought. But by then it hit me. These weren't just the words to his favorite song. They were words that likely reflected the sentiments of all the campers, counselors, and staff in an unbelievably scary and difficult time for them, their families, friends, and neighbors. As we entered the forest, I noticed that the path was lined with rainbow-colored lead lights pulsating to soft electronic dance music. Through the trees, I could see an enormous bonfire by a small lake. The campers were sitting on the ground around the fire, furiously writing notes to each other. This was an end-of-camp activity called the Postman, where the campers write secret, usually anonymous notes, and have friends deliver them to other campers and occasionally counselors. Some were love notes to fellow campers, others were notes of gratitude. At one point Rabbi Irina's son Adam walked over and handed me a note that read, David thank you for uh, talking to me. It was interesting. At another point a former camper who was now an officer in the Ukrainian army came over to me with a sealed teal colored bag. I have a gift for you from Ukrainian army. I thanked him and opened it and found three sealed bags of army rations inside. We opened one of them and found individually sealed packages of crackers, cookies, meat, and other food items for a meal. It even contained a tea bag and a small container of Ukrainian honey. I was very touched by the gesture. After receiving more hugs, we said our goodbyes to the campers and left them by the lake. We had to leave very early the next morning to get back over the border and time for a flight back to Bucharest where we would return to our homes and families. I was told this evening marked the beginning of the difficult period in which all of the campers would be saying cheerful goodbyes to each other since camp would be ending by Monday. I felt a sadness of my own as we left them by the lake. It was like a wonderful dream that was ending. Back at the hotel, my fellow travelers and I gathered to reflect on the day and on the trip. And we received a surprise guest, the Ukrainian Army officer, I had invited him to join our group back at the hotel later that evening, but wasn't sure he would come. Though Leonid's translation was we asked through Leonid's translation, we asked the officer about the war. He declined to give details on anything. For example, we had heard that he had received a very special medal from one of Ukraine's top generals, but he would not tell us why. He did tell us that he had been given leave to return to camp for this for the weekend. He also told us that he had gone to university to study military tactics and history, following the footsteps of his parents, both career military. He said that he went in an act of rebellion because they had urged him not to go. After graduating, he became a bartender. When the Russians invaded last year, he was already a lieutenant and was put in charge of a company of soldiers. Rabbi Arina had told us that he had been in Israel a week ago and could have remained there. Why did you come back? we asked. To him, the answer was obvious. He had to fight for his country. What will you do after the war? That is too far in the future. When we get there, I will figure it out. We asked if there is anti-Semitism in the army. No, he said. He showed us a picture of himself in his uniform and pointed to a star of David he had on a ribbon under his name. He told us that he had made the ribbon and put it on the uniform. No one has ever said anything about it. He said that he wore the Star of David so that the Russian soldiers would see who they are fighting, that we are not Nazis. After we returned to our rooms, I called my wife and told her about my day. I was surprised to find myself getting choked up repeatedly, unable to get some of the words out as tears wheeled up in my eyes. We agreed to speak later. It had been a long, intense day. And that was just uh, after one day. The campers, counselors, and staff live it every day and have been since the Russians invaded in February of 2022, though to Ukrainians the war began when Russia seized Crimea in 2014. Back in L.A., as I read the latest news of the fighting in Ukraine, I pray that these wonderful children, campers, counselors, staff members, and the soldier who visited with us are staying safe. Despite or because of all of the horrors and challenges, These young campers come from all over Ukraine and from outside Ukraine simply because they love it. Like them, a part of me wishes I could go back to see them again and show my family what a special place it is. Camp Rama in Ukraine That was my visit to Camp Rama in Ukraine by David Kext from the My Turn section. David Kext is an independent producer in Los Angeles. He currently serves as the vice chair of the Schechter Institute's Board of Directors. All right, let's uh, start closing with some ads from the Jewish Journal for August 18th to the 24th, 2023. Uh, Starting with this one, Los Angeles Jewish Health is energizing senior life. The evolution of our name from the Los Angeles Jewish Home to Los Angeles Jewish Health reflects the full spectrum of our comprehensive award-winning programs and services. Los Angeles Jewish Health has grown from a group of caring neighbors providing shelter to a leading nonprofit senior care organization. Our mission remains the same to deliver excellence in senior care for all, rooted in Jewish values. More than 100 years of trusted care, we meet you where you are in life to provide a customized experience that's right for you. Independent living, assisted living, senior behavioral health, short term rehabilitation, skilled nursing, PACE, hospice, and palliative care, nursing school, geriatric health, memory care. LAJ Health, Los Angeles Jewish Health. One call does it all. 855 227 3745, website lajhealth.org. Here's this one This is your time. Celia is your place. Assisted living, independent living, memory care. Discover a modern resort style retirement community in Pacific Palisades. Opening summer 2023 and accepting reservations now. Luxurious residences with designer finishes, floor-to-ceiling windows, and stunning views. Exceptional amenities including a state-of-the-art vitality center with a hydrotherapy spa. Fresh seasonal cuisine featuring locally sourced produce for healthy living. Personalized care by guided licensed nurses. Visit us 310-310-8218. Website, livecla.com. That's L-I-V-E-C-I-E-L-A.com. And we have this one right here. Same day women's health care now open at 852 South Robinson Avenue at LA, 90035. Insurance accepted. Uh, easy, uh, easy, uh, easy cash rates. Well, women package. Call us today or just walk in. Phone is 917-410-6905. Open evenings and weekends. Services offered. G, uh, GYN care. PAN. Well well woman exam. Well woman package. Uh, pap smear. Menopause. PMS. PCDS. Uh, fibroids. STD testing. On-site ultrasound. Pelvic scan. Contraception regular periods, and urinary problems. Please visit walking, uh, YN, walkgyn.com for details. Compassionate, holistic, and stellar GYN care to all women when they need it. Walk in GYN care. Women empowered. All right, folks, that will do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. For everything happening that's with, with us Jewish folk in the city, the state, Israel, and the nation, find it all here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Ron Shalom and peace.